This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. All right, Pastor Russ, we want to finish talking about this David Platt sermon that was preached back in 2009. And I just want to give you a kind of a rundown of of how evangelicals roll in regard to their preaching schedule. In the evangelical church structure, when I was growing up in a Baptist church, it was sermon du jour. Outside of Christmas and Easter, you didn't know what you were getting on any given week. It was whatever the pastor wanted to preach on. In the, let's say, the 80s, And into the 90s, you had the influence of Willow Creek Community Church that began to encourage churches to preach in a series where you would spend anywhere from four to six, maybe eight if you really wanted to push it, on a series of thoughts. And uh, listen, there's nothing wrong with teaching in in a series. We do it here at St. John's on Wednesday nights. And actually, on Sunday morning, we have a 52-week series. In one of these series, they would include the topic of baptism and the Lord's Supper. That would be included in, let's say, a series entitled Rethinking Church, or something obviously having to do with the ethos or the practices of, of that particular local church. The point is, once they are through with that series where they're going to talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper, they're never going to bring those issues up again. They're never going to teach on it. That is the authoritative teaching. And then they're going to move on to other series that are more felt needs, issues of the family, issues of marriage, things like that. And the point is, is anybody comes in and they're new, and they ask about the Lord's Supper or about baptism. The church obviously has written information, but they will say, well, I preached a sermon back in 2009 on that particular subject, and here's a copy of it, or you can find it online. That's the way the evangelical kind of ethos is. For instance, I mean, we're looking at a a David Platt sermon from 2009, and upon looking at his website, I mean, I wasn't completely thorough uh, in my search, uh, but I would dare say he's not preached on it since then. Not in the sense he obviously mentions it but uh, in sermons, but the point is it's never been a detailed, full-blown look at it for an hour in the, in the service. As I was uh, investigating Lutheranism and certainly listening to all of these Lutheran pastors They reference baptism and the Lord's Supper all the time, if not in every sermon. Whereas in the evangelical church, we're going to address it one time, and then we're going to move away from it, and we're not going to discuss it again. I mean, hearing that, how does that, what what do you think about that? I don't know what I think about that. My first first take uh, would be that if you don't think that uh, the Lord uses means to save you, there's no reason to talk about what he doesn't use. And so uh, the reason that Lutherans talk about it all the time is because he connects his promises to these things. Baptism is connected to the promise of salvation. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. And uh, the sacrament of the altar also is connected to the promise of baptism. The, the promise, uh, the promise connected to the sacrament of the altar, is also a, a a saving promise. It is for you, for the forgiveness of sins, and where there is the forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. That is the gospel that the Lord forgives sins, and through the forgiveness of sins, saves us from this body of death. And see, I guess as a former evangelical, God working through means was just not on my radar. This, this is the Lutheran critique of even the sacramentarians of the, of the Reformation era. This boast that there was a direct working of the Holy Spirit on them, apart from any means whatsoever. And Luther's response was simply this. Seriously? How did you ever hear about Jesus? You heard about it through the Word. Isn't this clear and plain evidence that the Lord uses means to bring you the salvation that was won on Calvary? So you can't deny that the Lord uses means in the first place. 
Now, the question then becomes, I mean, if you're a, if you're, if you're a sacramentarian or a, a, an evangelical, you, you have to admit that argument. You have to admit that your child who sings, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, did that because she learned it, not because the Holy Spirit, apart from means, moved her to do this. Now, the question is, does the Lord use any other means? Right. See, the evangelical, they, they do not use the word means, but they still acquiesce to it by acknowledging that God works through the preacher. Growing up in a Baptist church, my pastor said every Sunday, this was his prayer, uh, just no, no different from the simple prayer that you or I would pray before a sermon. His prayer was always, Lord, help me to get out of the way and for you to speak to your people. Amen. That is an acknowledgement that God is working through the means of this sinful human preacher. Correct? In a sense, I think it's interesting how he puts it, though. A Lutheran pastor comes into the pulpit and doesn't say, oh, shucks, here I stand, I'm, I'm in the way of what God's trying to do. He says, here I am. I've been called to do this. The people need instruction, so I'd better step up to the plate and do my job. It's an acknowledgment, different from what the Baptist preacher is saying, mm-hmm. that I'm not in the way. In fact, I am the, the means that the Lord is using. I get the sort of tipping the hat to the fact, you know, uh, here I am talking and I'm speaking God's word. See, the Lutheran says, look, the Holy Spirit is in the words spoken by the pastor. Or the evangelical would not acknowledge that. I'm sure there might be and, some. And so you've talked about this before. When you use the uh, this, this term that was talked about by Walter Ong, the performative word. For that word to be performative, it needs to be articulated. And for that word to be articulated, there needs to be a voice. And the voice is the voice of that of the called pastor. This is what Jesus promises. He who hears you hears me, Luke chapter 10. He doesn't say he who steps out of the way when he's talking my word hears me. He says he who hears you hears me. Mm -hmm. This is just a huge difference, it seems to me. And I see the difference that you're pointing out. I just want to somehow acknowledge that evangelicals, there's a grain of this already in them where them knowing about means, that God works through means. They know that when the pastor gets up, his job is to proclaim God's word. Right. So it's there, even though they don't call it means. I mean, I didn't hear about this until I was pursuing my doctorate of ministry at the Baptist seminary. They didn't speak about means. And so if baptism and the Lord's Supper are those means as well in which God wants to give you forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. This is all strange talk to them. Totally strange talk. Is there a way that we could avoid using the word means if we wanted to talk to our evangelical friends and talk about God's toolbox or... The garden hose that God wants to get his his gifts to you. I mean, Brian Wolf Mueller used the example of the electric station. How does that electricity get to you? The means, of course, are through wires, cables. So the good news is, is that the gospel is still getting through from the power station. And he called the power station, so to speak, the cross cross. of Christ. 2,000 years ago, on the other side of the globe, how does it get to you? To you and me, it makes perfect sense that this comes through means. Gratefully, even for the evangelical. It comes through means even though they don't recognize it. Exactly! This is how they've heard the gospel and responded to it. So the wire is still getting there, or the electricity, so to speak, go back to the metaphor, is still getting there. It's just not a braided wire. It's kind of like a brownout. <laughs> right, right. They've only got, it's supposed to be a three a copper line wire, and it's, it's only a one copper line, right? Because it's only the word. Correct. And praise be to God. We're not suggesting that the evangelicals aren't going to go to heaven. However, we are saying that they're missing out on the goods that God wants to give them. That is exactly what we're saying over and over and over again. And this goes back to our previous podcast. When you are in the despair of trying to do it all for Jesus, and then you learn that the Lord wants to give you his gifts, to go back to the metaphor, you'll either move or you'll shimmy up that pole yourself and try to get the electric company out there to fix this cable because you're so desperate to get all that God wants to give you. Am I right in understanding this? I I don't 
spend an awful lot of time thinking about evangelicals, but am I right in understanding that, that an evangelical would think of the goods that God wants to give you uh, as something different from what, what, what Lutherans would? In other words, what God wants to give you is a happy life or uh, lots of money. For example, I think I hear it from Joel Osteen. Yes, that is a, a strain of evangelicalism that most conservative fundamentalist evangelicals, they call that for what that is. They that would is, shoot at. They would. It is the name it and claim it crowd that they wouldn't uh, want anything really to do with. So what does the Lord, what are the good things that the Lord wants to give an evangelical from their perspective? What do they think of? When, when the Lord, when, when, when you think about what the Lord wants to give you, is it the chief things, the forgiveness of sins and life and salvation in Christ? And you know what? I'm shaking my head here because even the forgiveness of sins is not something that is on the radar for the evangelical. I could not answer your question that you're asking in regard to what the evangelical is looking for because the evangelical is mostly obsessed with what he or she can do for God as opposed to what God can do for them. And, and so you're saying that the evangelical doesn't regard the forgiveness of sins as a, what, a major gift of God? No, the forgiveness of sins is in the rearview mirror for the evangelical. This was taken care of when he or she was saved and asked Jesus into their heart. So an ongoing sense, even though they recognize their own sinfulness, if you went to an evangelical and you said, how do you receive the forgiveness of sins? They would point back to when they were saved, when they accepted Christ. So it's a one-time thing in the rearview mirror. And <clears throat> Lutherans can talk that way. Luther can talk about how the sins of the Christian are constantly, daily covered by the blood of Christ. And that this is a blessing of being in the Holy Christian Church. The issue, it seems to me, is this, and this goes back to your despair business, we agree with the evangelicals that we are saved by faith. Faith is fed only by the forgiveness of sins. And when that message dries up, how is the faith fed? You can always look back to this, this point in time and say, well, here it happened, and I suppose there's some comfort in that. But if you're living with a constant awareness of your own sin and feeling as though you're falling short of what God has called you to when you accepted Jesus into your heart, as, as they say, then how can you have any confidence? How can you have any real faith, trust, confidence in, in God's promises? And I think that's the issue, isn't it? They don't. So how do they read the scriptures? Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your voice be attentive to the ears of my cries for uh, mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That's a good example where you've got David. This is a, a psalm where clearly it's spoken by a believer in Christ. And then you've got Romans chapter 7, another place where this is so clear. Even Paul. I mean, talk about a call from Jesus. No evangelical bumped into Jesus on the road to Damascus and accepted him into his heart. Paul did bump into the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was baptized. The Lord claimed him. Paul didn't lay claim to Jesus. And in Romans 7, he can see no way out of the bind that he's in. He's a constant sinner. I agree. And you know what's amazing is, is that the first thing that happens to St. Paul is that he is baptized. Correct. And we but the evangelical even... would say that's the first step of obedience after becoming a Christian. That's the moniker that they would use. First step of obedience. Mm -hmm. And we don't even know at that point, I think it's interesting, do we know at that point whether he has come to faith in Christ when he's baptized? All we know is, as Peter says, that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins the promise is available for you and your children, Acts 2.38, through, through baptism. Because this is how God is working, through these means. And we don't know. I, I, think this is, I think this is a really interesting point. We do not know. Paul didn't seek out Ananias. Correct. The Lord the sent him. It was the other way around. And Ananias just walked in and baptized him. And the scales fell off Paul's eyes, and he was a believer. So the gift of the Holy Spirit was given through, through this means. 
Didn't Luther say something to the uh, effect of gold is still gold if it's worn by either a whore or a queen? Correct. So the idea here is is that even in my baptism, the the Lord still did the work, even though everybody who was there, including myself, thought it was an outward display of an inward reality. Praise be to God that he still gives the gift, even though we deny Deny it. Deny it. Which is good news, because the evangelical who struggles through with these things, thinks about them, reads the scriptures, accepts what God's word says about these things, he doesn't have to be rebaptized. I wonder, though, if the same thing that is pertinent in the sacrament of the altar is pertinent in, in baptism. If, if it's not the case that, uh, as Paul says, uh, that if we eat and drink not discerning the, the body of Christ, eat and drink uh, not having examined ourselves, we eat and drink judgment upon ourselves, that there is some way in which the judgment of God is ha- handed out simultaneously with his blessing. And you might want to cut this whole business here that we're talking about. But how can you stand in judgment over God's plain word? I'm not trying to impugn your baptism. But how can you stand in judgment over God's plain word and receive his gifts without judgment? Does this make sense to you? Oh, I, I think about it quite often. And it doesn't mean that God is not still trying to work the blessing through this thing. It just means that it's bumping into great resistance and that great resistance is its own judgment in a sense. Well, if the, going back to the illustration earlier, if the cable is cut, the cable is cut. So is the cable cut, or is it have a weak place where it got bent too much? Oh, I think it was just never put up. Never, never even got put up. <laughs> never even got put up. The boys but, rolled out one spool of wire, and that's all she wrote. But think about your situation. The Lord still used your baptism. The comfort of it was always there. It was always there waiting for you. The judgment attendant upon it remained as long as there was no acknowledgement of the true gift. Because you could find no comfort in your baptism. Correct. I was never directed to it. And so it just became a work that essentially implied work harder. Exactly. And this is really my motivation for you and I to get together. There's a couple motivations, but clearly one of them is to allow the evangelical to wrestle with these things and to think through these things and to realize the comfort that is there in these things that God has provided for this individual, for his child, whom he made his child in baptism. I hear you. So going back to where we left off with Pastor Platt's sermon, we we talked last time about how he translates this word is as represents. He doesn't even mince words about it. He goes right straight into it. And this is what left you, or at least your mouth, agape the last time. And we talked about how the common refutation Well, Jesus also, when he spoke, he used pictures and he said, I am the door, I am the vine, and I am the light. And we talked about that last time, but I picked up this book this week. Have you seen this? Take, Eat, Take, Drink by Ernest Bartles? I found it in the St. John's bookstore. And I thought this was really interesting. On page 38, he was talking about how when Jesus says, I am the vine, that this was a tip of the hat to the Lord's Supper. Have you ever heard that before? No, that's a good that's a good one. That's interesting. He says both Protestant Higgins and Catholic Codell see a connection between these words of Jesus and the Lord's Supper. Here in chapter 15, he states, I'm the true vine. Another parallel is seen in the words, my father is the husbandman, the vine dresser. Okay, so we, we still have other metaphors. The vine was a recognized symbol of the Lord's Supper at an early date. We know this from a Eucharistic prayer in the Didache. There we read, and concerning the Eucharist, hold Eucharist thus, first concerning the cup, we give thanks, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your child, which you made known to us through Jesus, your child. I just thought that was interesting. It is very interesting, but we still have other metaphors. I am the door, I am the the, the good shepherd, uh, so on and so forth. And, and I think there's a those are problematic and, and probably actually where the sacramentarians would base their thinking. But let's go to some, some other ones that are perhaps more relevant. 
We've got, for example, the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove upon Jesus at his baptism. Are we to say that there was no union between the Holy Spirit and the form of the dove? Was it just the powers of the Holy Spirit? It's not said. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say the powers of the Holy Spirit came down on Jesus. It says the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove. Is the dove merely a symbol of the absent Holy Spirit? Again, the words themselves don't suggest that. They say the Holy Spirit descended. Who's doing the descending? It's the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. So here what we've got is this union, as it were, between the, the form and the underlying thing, the, the, the Holy Spirit himself. Go to the Pentecost. Same thing happens there. There we've got the Holy Spirit coming in the flames. Once again, God unites himself with this earthly element. There's the burning bush. Was God absent there? No. God was there in the burning bush. He is the one who's speaking in the burning bush to Moses. So with all of these things, I think these are more relevant. We make a distinction when we teach the children between literalism on the one hand and natural meaning of the language on the other hand. So literalism leads you down all sorts of strange roads where you fail to read apocalyptic literature as apocalyptic literature filled with symbols and so on. So let's go back then to the to the question of Christ's real presence. He picks up a piece of bread and he says, this is my body. How, is the, how does this differ? And I think the burden of proof rests upon the evangelical. How does this differ from the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove? The Holy Spirit descending upon the disciples with tongues of flame. God himself appearing in the burning bush. God himself coming to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre. God himself walking about in the garden in the cool of the day in Genesis chapter 3. So your point is, is that the evangelical, he can't say that those things are spiritual. He cannot say that those things represent, they are what they are. Ergo, when we come to Jesus holding out this bread and this cup of blessing, it has to be what Jesus says that it is. That's where we have to start. And if we don't start there, then we have to deny God being with Israelites in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. He wasn't there. That was just a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He wasn't actually there. We have to deny that he was talking to Moses. That was just some, he was a great ventriloquist and made the burning bush talk, but he was far removed up in heaven. And that gives us a God who is no better than the clockmaker of the deists. And that, that's a troubling thing. Frankly, what we'd have to do is we'd have to go so far as to deny the incarnation of Christ himself. Because it is predicated of the Son of Man that he is also the Son of God. If God can't be present with his body and blood in the bread and wine of the Eucharist, equally impossible should it be uh, for him to be present as the Son of God in the Son of Man. I remember when my mind was blown in thinking that the forbidden fruit was a sacrament. And that here you take a physical thing that has a promise, not of blessing, but a promise of death placed upon it once it is consumed. Now, through the Lord's Supper, you have the exact same thing, with the exception it's not got a promise of death placed upon it as much as it has a promise of life forgiveness of sins, because of what you're saying, that Jesus is there. And whenever Jesus is there, that's what he brings. That's what he wants to bring, that's for sure. So did you finish making your point about how the evangelicals, they have to deny a lot of things. It's not just denying the Lord's Supper or his presence therein. They have to deny a lot of things in order to get around the real presence of Christ. They absolutely do. Who, who tempted Eve? Was it Satan or a serpent? Scripture tells us in Revelation that the serpent is the ancient foe. Or was it, just a, was it just a snake that the devil was throwing his voice into? You can just go down the line and, and basically gut all of Scripture. Isn't this where higher criticism leads? 
Well, it is where higher criticism leads, and maybe what we're saying, maybe what we're discovering here is that higher criticism has its roots in this sort of stance over scripture that, that is perpetrated by the evangelicals themselves. In other words, they are the original higher critics, uh, even though they would prefer not to think of themselves in that way. But when you stand in criticism over God's own word, you've got a problem. You're right, but I would argue that most of the evangelicals I know they believe that Bible from cover to cover, except baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, I agree with you that that has ramifications for much more than just those two sacraments. But they believe that Bible down to the book of maps. They hold to every word in that Bible. The verbal inspiration of Scripture. Correct. And this is what we share with the evangelicals. But your point is, if you deny it here then it makes for faulty ground elsewhere, correct? I think so, and I think what we're seeing, we saw it just minutes ago when we talked about how they read the scriptures. How do you read Psalm 130? If you're an evangelical, how do you read Psalm 130? Is this the constant cry of the Christian? No. If you're the evangelical, how do you read uh, Romans chapter 7? Is this the, the existential position of a Christian? The answer is probably no. Well, I have heard arguments given that this was Paul before he was saved. This is the argument of N.T. Wright. And this, this new man in Christ is Paul post-salvation. That still doesn't reckon with Psalm 130. It still doesn't reckon with Psalm 51 with virtually all the penitential psalms, it still doesn't reckon with the fact that, was it what, was, was David not a sinner, or was he not saved, let's use that term, was he not saved when he committed adultery with Bathsheba? Are not all of the thoughts and desires of the human heart soiled with sin? And do we not constantly need God's forgiveness that he uses uh, means, means to deliver to us? This, this is, uh, to me, I think... The, I don't know, is there a whitewashing? It's sort of a whitewashing of the message of Scripture. But I would say the reason you can look at it so clearly is because you have been taught the difference between law and gospel. They have not. And this is where Walther would say something, and Luther, and many others. The Bible remains a closed book. It is a complete closed book. This is fascinating to me that somebody, like an evangelical, can read the Bible cover to cover, and they could do it over and over and over again. And if they don't see it by means of law gospel... It's entirely closed. Isn't that... That is so incredibly sad. It's, it's sad, and it's, it's scary, and it really highlights the preaching and teaching task, doesn't it? That, uh, and, of course, all we need to do is look at uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch was no doubt a Jew uh, who had been uh, made a eunuch and taken to the court of the king in, in Ethiopia. That's what his job was. And so, interestingly, he stands outside of the covenant because you can't have these kind of bodily uh, injuries. And he's reading the scroll of Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, and he doesn't get it. It's a closed book to him until Philip says that all of this has been fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. But even the eunuch's question was a great one. Who is he, referring to the prophet, who is he talking about? Correct. Like there was enough information there to kind of get the wheels turning, but it wasn't clear. And so the premium, again, uh, this is interesting. We're back to where we started in a sense. Uh, the premium is placed upon the oral communication of the word. But there again, also, what does the Ethiopian eunuch say after Philip finishes his sermon? What prevents me from being baptized? Here's a man with his testicles removed because he's working around the king's harem. He can't go to the temple, as you said, with these mutilations. mutilations. What prevents me? Does does this mutilation prevent me from being baptized? No, sir. No. Because of the forgiveness of sins. And it's available to him and his children, anybody who are afar off, as Acts 2.39 says. Yes, that is correct. That's an interesting thing. So a closed book, until it's explained properly, it, it places, uh, I, I actually feel this burden, I don't know if you do, uh, when I get in the pulpit on Sunday morning, when I stand in front of a Bible class, when I stand in front of children uh, for catechesis, getting it right actually matters. Amen.
That is a driving force in my preaching and teaching as well. And we, we realize very quickly that you can say lots and lots of things about the Bible and lots and lots of things about God. Here again, we've got uh, what, what St. Paul calls the pattern of sound words. I just think that that is such a wonderful, uh, the Lutherans pick up on this too in the, in the formula of Concord. You can have all the sound words you want. If the pattern's wrong, you've got it goofed up. If you don't divide law and gospel properly, if you don't understand that God uses means to save, you have missed out. This is a great segue into looking at the conclusion here of Pastor Platt's sermon, because you can clearly see how he takes something like the Lord's Supper, and as we'll get to in further episodes about baptism, he takes these that are to be understood as gospel, and he turns them all into law. Because here's a guy who really firmly believes the gospel of Christ, but he doesn't see the Lord's Supper and baptism as gospel. So, how should we look at it in that way? Well, that leads to why then do we celebrate it? Because there's a lot of, it raises the stakes. If we need to do this in order to receive Christ, yes, we need to do this as often as possible. Why do we need to do it often if it's just a reflection? Here's why. First, to remember, foundationally, the Lord's Supper is about remembering. Look in, in chapter 11, back in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24. This is what Paul emphasized, what Jesus emphasized. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup, saying, This, is, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord's Supper is foundationally about remembering. When we take the bread, we remember the body of Jesus. We remember a body. We remember the fact that God committed the ultimate act of condescension and took a robe of human flesh upon himself. He became a man and he suffered and he died in a body. We remember the body of Jesus and we remember the blood of Jesus. When you take the cup, you remember the blood of Jesus. The blood that was shed on the cross that is now sprinkled over your hearts to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and give us access to God that inaugurates a new covenant with us. The part that I had a problem with is I was, well, there's a couple thoughts here, but one of them was how he said the blood that was shed on the cross is now sprinkled over your hearts. Well, that reminded me of that passage in Isaiah that talks about not sprinkling blood over your heart, but sprinkling what? Water. I will give you a new heart. I will sprinkle water over it. I will cleanse it. That's a picture of baptism. This is so important. Ladies and gentlemen, the Lord's Supper is not about channeling. It's not about imagining. It's not about dreaming. It's not about meditating. It is about fixing our thoughts on a focused point in history, on a real body that was given, that was beaten and scourged and spit upon and nailed to a cross and real blood that flowed from that cross. We fix our thoughts on that reality. We remember. Where is the benefit given to you as a result of what Pastor Platt just said, Pastor Bross? I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I, I just don't know what to say. I mean, I think, um, I think, I think the 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 emphasis on what we do is is problematic in a sense uh, and yet jesus does tell us to remember and it is the fact that through the sacrament of the altar um he, so i guess what i i guess what i want to say is i don't want to deny every single word that he says here but if this is the pinnacle of what he's getting out of the sacrament of the altar then he's then he's then he's then he's uh mixed it up St. Paul clearly says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again in glory. And so there is a sense in which celebration of the sacrament actually is a remembrance of the sacrificial death of Christ. I don't think we want to deny that. Absolutely not. What's missing here is the gift that God gives. Correct. And that's what you see in the next paragraph where I've circled all of these words that he says. Again, 
open quote, Jesus says, this is a cup of a new covenant, and you remember, you look back, you remember when my blood was shed to bear the wrath of God against sin, when my body was given as a sacrifice on your behalf, close quote, which by the way, Pastor Platt is not quoting scripture here. He's making it up. And then I'll continue, open quote, this is my body given for you. Remember concretely, remember the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. Fix your thoughts on the cross so when we have the supper in a moment, that's what we're going to do. We're going to fix our thoughts on a real crucifixion and a real body and a real bloodshed. Close quote. Again, law, all law. This is what you are supposed to do with no benefit. Right, I think there's, I think there's probably very little benefit, but isn't, isn't this what faith does though? Faith clings through the sacrament to the cross of Jesus, in a sense. And so I maybe I'm not as worked up about this as you are. Although I mean, I recognize what what I'm what I'm seeing here is the complete lack of understanding that through this thing God gives you the forgiveness of sins, and that's just not uh, even present anywhere here. Exactly. Right. And I would argue that this is from a faulty understanding of distinguishing law and gospel from each other. I would, I would agree. I think you're probably right. Why are we doing this? We're doing it to remember. We're not doing it to receive. Exactly. And it's interesting here. He says we do it to remember, but we also do it to reflect. I'm sorry, I have a hard time understanding the difference between reflecting and remembering, but maybe that is me. The issue here, you go in any Southern Baptist church, and they're going to have the table up in front, the altar. The altar is going to have the words engraved, carved into the table, do this in remembrance of me. Again, law. And we're not suggesting that there's not an element of remembrance what we're saying is there's no benefit to it's doing not the this. Chief thing. It's not the chief thing, correct. Interestingly, too, the participation, I mean, one of the things that's missed here in what you just read is that the participation in the Passover meal actually integrated a person into the covenant. It made you part of the covenant just by eating. It was God's gift to, well, to make you part of the covenant, just like circumcision was. It's not a remembrance of the covenant. It makes you part of the covenant. Well, I'm thinking about, say, for instance, the bitter herbs that were eaten. So the bitter herbs was to be a remembrance of how difficult and painful that experience was. Correct. The original institution of the Passover, however, it gave you the benefit of the lamb. That's the point. Which was? Which was that the angel of death would pass over. And, and it looks forward to, uh, well, it's actually not the angel of death. It's the Lord himself. We, all, we often get that one goofed up. The Lord himself passes over. He, he is the agent of death uh, in the Passover. Why does he do that? Well, because he is the redeemer of the, of the people of Israel. And the way that he redeems Israel is he kills, he kills their enemies, just as Christ crushes the head of Satan uh, mm. in, in, his, in his own death. Mm. Well, let me just see this. At midnight, said so Exodus oh, yeah, twelve twenty nine. Yeah, at midnight, right. the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And the promise was actually uh, when He talks about it. This is what God says to Moses in Old Chapter eleven. About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, so on and so forth. There's not some other agent. It's the Lord himself. Right. It's not the angel. There's no, there's no mention of an angel. It's I, I, the eye is Yahweh. Strike down your enemies, O Lord. I mean, just look at this. 12, 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. As I said, there is a lot of you do, you do, you do. There's, there's very little benefit to you except for you conjuring up the remembrance. This is what you pointed out. And I think my biggest beef here is recognizing that he's boiled it down, in essence, to this act of remembrance, and there's absolutely no it's not a denial of the words. It's just a 
Well, he doesn't contradict Christ's words. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. He just doesn't want to talk about him. What would you say when you are quoting the verba and you make the sign of the cross over the chalice and the words you're either saying or chanting are Jesus's words that says, this cup is the new testament in my blood. You're speaking about the covenant, the Passover meal, and how that original Passover meal makes the covenant yours. When you therefore drink the new covenant in my blood, what does it do? Yeah, and I think I think the interesting thing here is that you're left with a hollowed out thing. If if you began with a premise that it is the body and blood of Christ, you would be looking at this thing as far more than a mere remembrance. You would you would be regarding it as the well, what it is, a theophany, the real presence of Christ right there in front of you. And that changes changes the entire direction of it. So a linchpin, it seems to me, of decent biblical theology on the sacrament of the altar is simply abiding by the words of Jesus, which is, this is my body, this is my blood. Could you then say that the Old Testament was written in animal blood and the New Testament written in Christ blood? See, if you were to say to the evangelical, where is the New Testament? They would point to the 27 books. Jesus does not point to the 27 books. He points to his blood in that cup, which he therefore gives for you to drink for the forgiveness of your sins. That's really interesting. And that's a that's a problem of language, isn't it? So testament has two two senses in English. One is the sense of last will and testament which we're mostly familiar with, but rarely use it outside of that example. Correct. And then the other one is testimony. That's another sense of the term testament, the the thing that has been testified to. And so when we talk about the Old and New Testaments as the canon, we're talking about that latter sense, the thing that has been testified to. But when Jesus uses the word diatheke in the words of institution, that is a last will and testament, which is an entirely different kind of thing. It's not the testimony of a witness on a witness stand, like the word testament means when we talk about Old and New Testament as canon. It's actually a will. It's his will. So you're concluding that the evangelical has, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, nothing more than a husk. They have just the shape of the Lord's gift. It's an empty box that is giving them nothing. They've denied it. Right. But they're being drilled over the head, at least in this sermon, that they're supposed to reflect, they're supposed to remember, they're supposed to repent, and then this... Open the empty box and then rejoice. And that's exactly what what it says right there. Remember, remember, remember. Open quote. The second part of that, which leads to this last facet, to rejoice. To rejoice because... Why do we rejoice in the Lord's Supper? Because he has set us free, end quote. So now you're telling people to rejoice over a gift that's not even there. Exactly. Do you see, Pastor Bross, how this can lead somebody to complete and utter despair? Absolutely. It just saddens me every time I think about it that evangelicals all over the world don't even realize what God wants to give them, but they have denied the gift. Over what? Just them not believing that Jesus could get his fingernails dirty or Jesus comes to us or them holding on to this symbolic meaning? I I seriously uh, can't pretend to understand the evangelical mind and why you'd you'd take Scripture so seriously in so many places uh, but deny Christ's clear words. The point of uh, it being a testament, a last will and testament, is that Lutherans point to this often you don't change a will. And this is precisely what the sacramentarians do. They change the will. They say, no, 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 no. It's as if God had said, you go to my safety deposit box and there's a million dollars in there. That's his will and testament. And what somebody tells you then, you get to the bank, and the guy who's in charge of, of doing this says, no, 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 that's not what the, what the will reads. Uh, you go to the safety deposit box and it's going to represent a million dollars. It's not really really a million dollars. It just points to some million dollar deposit at one point in time. It's a sad thing. 
terribly sad. Let's finish it up on the last page here. Pastor Platt says, Yes, in the Lord's Supper we look back. We remember what happened 2,000 years ago on a cross. We remember, we fix our eyes, our minds on that. But we also look forward. This is not just a picture, a symbol of a meal that was instituted back then. It is a picture and a symbol of a meal that is coming. Again, all of the rules and regulations that one has to go through in order to receive this meal in his understanding, it reminds me of when I was trying to learn how to play golf. Like everything's going through your mind as you address the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Keep this arm bent. Keep this arm stiff. Knees bent, butt out. It's not enjoyable because you're just still trying to, it, it, you're trying to build your muscle memory. Here, it reminds me of the same thing of everything that you've got to do as you come to the Lord's table where he's the one giving out the gift. And it seems strange uh, that, <clears throat> and of course, this, this goes along with, a, a, again, a sort of foreshortened view of Christ and his word and, and uh, uh, the kingdom of God. Okay, so let me talk about the kingdom of God here just a minute. When we talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God comes wherever Christ comes with his gifts. There is the kingdom. And we experience the kingdom as this interruption through death. Okay, that's how, that's how, that's how we ex experience it. <clears throat> we live in this life of disappointment. Uh, God's promises don't seem to be true, etc., 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 and there seems to be this interruption between this life and and the and the kingdom as if it's as if it's out there but but the clear message of the new testament is that wherever christ is there is his kingdom and so the the lutheran liturgy actually reflects this when we when we sing therefore with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven we laud and magnify thy glorious name evermore praising thee and saying and then we sing the kadosh and so this here, to me, denies the present reality that, that's happening on every altar every single Sunday, is that the Lord Jesus descends to this place in virtue of the fact that he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, that he fills all things, and this is not impossible for him at all. And with him falls to earth all of heaven. All the gifts of heaven are right there. And if an evangelical can believe that Jonah got swallowed by a large fish and that Mary was the virgin whom Gabriel came to and said, you will have the Christ child, and on and on and on and on of the things that evangelicals believe, that God created the world in six literal days. If they can believe that, why do they have such a hard time believing what you just said? You'd have to explain that to me. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. But I would love to pick up the kingdom and that thinking maybe in another podcast because that is a subject that all of us, not being familiar with a kingdom, not just Lutheran or evangelical, all of us living in a democratic republic have a little bit of a hard time getting our mind around because we don't have a monarchy. And, and any, any monarchy we know is a constitutionally limited monarchy. And So maybe you could come to the table next time with a focus on the kingdom and even how the Lord's Supper fits into that, as you've just alluded to. Last thing here, let's look at how Pastor Platt concludes his sermon. Brothers and sisters, when we take this cup and we drink this cup together, we are looking back and remembering the blood of Christ, but we are also anticipating the day when we will share the cup with our risen Savior. Now, my question is this. Now, he's right. I mean, to a certain degree, I don't know about this looking back and looking forward. Jesus makes a promise that this will happen one day with the Lord Jesus. Okay, so let's talk about this. This is Luke. This is in the Lucan recording of the, of the words of institution. Um, and actually, I think it's in Matthew as well. So let's go, let's go here. Well, as you turn there, just to finish this thought, what is going to happen on that day when evangelicals who have denied the real presence of Christ, when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, and all the evangelicals say what? 
Well, <laughs> not really. You don't really mean that, do you, Lord? Yes. I, yeah, I think they're going to be in for a surprise. This is what Matthew records for the words of institution. Matthew 26, 26 and following. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the testament, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Question is, when does Jesus drink it with us anew in his Father's kingdom? Where is the kingdom? The kingdom is wherever Christ comes with the forgiveness of sins. And so this promise is fulfilled practically within three days uh, because on, 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 on the road to Emmaus, he encounters the disciples. He sits down, he breaks bread with them, and they recognize that it is the Lord Jesus through the breaking of the bread. The promise is fulfilled right there in a very, in a very, Oh, in a special, in a special way, but it's fulfilled constantly for the Christian church on earth whenever they celebrate the sacrament. We do drink this cup anew in the kingdom of his father, because the kingdom of his father is the holy church both on earth and in heaven. So this is not an eschatological fulfillment that we're waiting. We're not waiting for it. We, we have it already and we will continue to have it for eternity. Remember, we experience the kingdom as this great rupture. That's how we, we can't help but experience it. And the rupture line is death. We think the, the way that God sees his kingdom is this seamless whole. The way that we see God's kingdom is this, is this chopped up thing where we've got this life, then comes death, and then we'll throw the return of Jesus in there to judge the world. And then, then the kingdom starts for, for real. And that's how we, we think of it. But that's not how God thinks about it at all. The view from eternity is that this is one seamless kingdom in which God reigns through the Son who shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins and the redemption of his church. Who would have thought that the Lord's Supper has a bearing upon the kingdom? That's, I guess, interesting, isn't it? Uh, but it's right there in the words, isn't it? In the words of institution that it's an integral part of the kingdom. Well, let's pick it up right there, talking about the kingdom the next time we gather together. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.